I V M. Sanctions, detentions, airstrikes, dangerous escalation. These are terms that we come across quite often on the global landscape. However, the month of July has been tense because all the above elements have played out at the same time. Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy, and I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. Each week on the show, I get a guest on board to discuss global affairs and foreign policy. This week, however, we're doing something slightly different. On the last Tuesday of every month, I'm going to do a roundup of the important news on the world stage, so that foreign affairs make slightly more sense, and hopefully, we can deep dive into some of these issues in later podcasts. But before, let's take a short break. So let's begin. The ongoing conflict between the United States of America and Iran has dominated the scene, while other events like Britain's new prime minister, Imran Khan meeting with Donald Trump, the protests in Hong Kong, the ICJ verdict on Kulbushan Yadav, all mean that July has been an exciting month. The first story for today is a legal case. The International Court of Justice ruled on the case of Kulbushan Yadav's death sentence in Pakistan. For those of you who are slightly clueless, let me fill you in. India and Pakistan have been at loggerheads over this issue since 2017. Kulbushan Yadav is a former Indian Navy officer who was given a death sentence in a close trial in Pakistan in April 2017 on the charges of espionage and terrorism, with Pakistan saying that he was spying for India's research and analysis wing or RAW. India claims that the sentence was issued after an extracted confession that he was pressured to make. Pakistan's consistently denied consular access to Jadav, while only once allowing his family to visit him, and the atmosphere was said to be very intimidating. India was hoping to receive a favorable judgment, which it more or less did. While the bench on the 17th of July held that Pakistan was in breach of international law by not allowing him consular access, it refused to accept India's plea that Jadav be released immediately. Instead, it says that Pakistan should provide effective review and reconsideration of the case. Now, both India and Pakistan have been claiming this as a victory for themselves. But what's happening to Jadav? Whether or not his sentence is reversed and he's allowed to return to India will depend on what evidence Pakistan can provide in favor of their case. What stands out as significant, however, is that the senior advocate who represented India only charged rupees one, while Pakistan spent more than twenty crores on lawyers to prove that Jadhav was a spy and failed to do so. Now, speaking of Pakistan. Prime Minister Imran Khan met with U.S. President Donald Trump on 22nd July, in what can be seen as a means of mending strains in the relations between the two states. Now, following the Afghan conflict, Pakistan received reduced security aid from the U.S., something that the Prime Minister is hoping to reverse. They also discussed the possibility of peace in Afghanistan, a conversation during which Trump went on to say that he could win the war in ten days if he had to, but that would lead to the death of millions. Imran Khan, on the other hand, stated that there was no military solution to the problem, as it would be wrong to leave millions dead in the quest to win the conflict. What followed after Khan's return to Islamabad also made waves. The Afghan Taliban reportedly said that it would be willing to visit Islamabad if an invitation came through from the Prime Minister to work on ending the 18-year-old conflict in the region. Now, Donald Trump also went on to state that he would, and I quote, "love to moderate on the issue of Kashmir." Apparently, 
Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, made this request asking Trump to do so. Now, India has denied that such a request was ever made. And all of this goes back to 1972, at the end of the Bangladesh War. So in 1972, India and Pakistan signed a treaty called the Simla Agreement. And one of the many things that they agreed to was that Kashmir would be resolved through direct bilateral resolution. And Trump's statement goes directly against this grain of thought. Now, on a more cheerful note, India successfully launched Chandrayaan-2 on the 22nd of July on a mission to the south of the moon. Now, it's been put on hold due to a technical glitch a week earlier. So this marks a significant victory for India in terms of space exploration. In fact, it was Chandrayaan-1 which had discovered traces of water in the atmosphere and the surface of the moon. If a soft landing is achieved on the surface of the moon, India will become only the fourth country to do so, after the US, Russia and China. You may ask, why the south of the moon? Well, that's because India will be the first nation to launch a probe to the south. And secondly, because it's a part of the moon that permanently remains in the shade, with temperature cold enough even to freeze several volatile compounds. These coal traps, as they're called, could also contain evidence of the solar system and could be used to confirm the giant impact hypothesis that the moon was created when an object of the size of the planet collided into the Earth nearly 4.4 billion years ago. That will certainly be quite an achievement if the mission successfully goes through. What it also aims to achieve is to be able to find out if the moon has water with the ultimate question of whether or not it may be able to sustain human life at some point. Now, back to planet Earth. Now, I know we're talking about July 2019, but we'll have to rewind a bit to understand the mass escalation of conflicts that's been happening this month. And the conflict with Iran is one that's been drawing out for a very long time. So you know that the current escalation goes back to 2015, when the US President Donald Trump pulled out of the JOKPA, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, between Iran and the P5 countries. Ever since 2018, Trump has imposed three rounds of sanctions, the first two being ones that he'd lifted during the deal in 2015. The third round of sanctions came about after the US claimed that Iran had downed one of its pipelines from international airspace on 20th June. They were announced on 24th June 2019. Ever since, the conflict between the two nations has only risen, adding to which is Iran's decision to enrich uranium beyond the limits that it agreed to as part of the JCPOA. Now, the month of July started off with the British Royal Marines impounding Grace One, an Iranian oil vessel which Britain said was on its way to Syria on 5th of July. Britain also clarified that the only reason it impounded the vessel in Gibraltar was because of its destination, not because it was carrying oil despite US sanctions. Now, Britain offered to release Grace One on Iran's promise that the oil was not headed to Syria, which was sanctioned by the European Union since 2011. But these negotiations broke down too. Iran refused to disclose what destination the ship was heading to. Meanwhile, Gibraltar extended the detention of the ship for another 30 days, thus maintaining, and some might say escalating, tensions in the Gulf. At this point, it's important to note that Iran's fighting this battle on multiple fronts. While it's dealing with Britain over the tanker on one side, it's also having to find a way around US sanctions on the other. The sanctions, while not confirmed for this reason, have been concluded by many to be a means for the US to cripple the Iranian economy, which relies majorly on the export of oil in order to get them to succumb to pressure and comply with the terms of the nuclear deal. Despite scathing attacks on the backbone of its economy, Iran has gone on the offensive. 
They declared that they would continue to enrich uranium beyond the limit of 3.67% that was agreed upon in the deal. And this was done in an effort to have the EU put pressure on the US to lift sanctions. On 8th of July, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, confirmed that Iran had exceeded the 3.67 mark. While the UK and Germany have called for Iran to reverse its action, the US has obviously maintained that it would continue its policy of maximum pressure. Iran has also returned the favour to Britain by detaining two British-linked tankers, one registered in Britain and the other in Panama. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards took a British oil tanker called Stena Impero and this Panama-flagged MTZIA into port for violating maritime regulations and smuggling fuel, respectively. This led to even more escalation in a crisis that already has the Gulf in grips. There's an important Indian connection to all of this. Of the 23 crew members aboard the Stena Impero, 18 of them are Indian. There were 12 Indians on the MTZIA, nine of whom the Iranian government has released on July 26th. But because of the 30-day extension by Gibraltar on the detention of Grace One, the possibility of an immediate resolution of the situation is rather grim. How this nosedive in relations reaches a resolution is yet to be seen, especially since such a resolution depends on numerous factors, one of which requires us to shift our focus to Britain. Britain has just elected its new Prime Minister, with Boris Johnson of the Conservative Party replacing Theresa May. I know this isn't really the news, but I'm going to read out some funny tweets from Twitter about Boris Johnson. Quote, For any Americans wondering who Boris Johnson is, he's what would happen if you threw Donald Trump a hay bale and a thesaurus into a washing machine and then it caught fire. End quote. Boris Johnson looks like a comedian you've never heard of, but then suddenly has eight Netflix specials and roles in every DreamWorks film. End quote. Boris Johnson is what keeps happening when people buy morally reprehensible tabloids for a few decades because it's all just harmless fun for your dumbest relatives and couldn't possibly inform their entire rapidly narrowing worldview. End quote. Now, don't get me wrong here. I have nothing against Boris Johnson. I just really enjoy people making fun of politicians on Twitter. Now, Johnson overtook Jeremy Hunt by more than twice the number of votes and he became the 14th Prime Minister of Britain. This which is significant for several reasons. The first is with respect to the standoff with Iran. It will be interesting to see how Johnson deals with the entire situation, given that he also has a strong relationship with Donald Trump. The second is his commitment to ensure Brexit by 31st October, whether or not a deal is reached with the EU. The next few months will be crucial in the history of Britain, because the British leadership is in an unenviable position in trying to steer Brexit, deal or no deal. Yet another aspect of all of this will be EU's support or the lack thereof of Britain in dealing with Iran and also in convincing Trump to lift the sanctions that it's imposed on the Islamic Republic. It all comes down to whether Johnson will be able to put his differences aside and work with the EU such that both entities can come out on the other side with a favourable solution. But that sounds a lot more simple than it actually is. Now, Boris Johnson's step up to Prime Minister also came with a share of big changes. 17 members of Theresa May's cabinet were sacked and replaced by those on Johnson's side of the fence. The primary change was that of Jeremy Hunt stepping down as Foreign Secretary to be replaced by Preeti Patil, who is also the first woman of Indian origin to hold a position in British politics. How their approaches differ in dealing with Brexit and the standoff with Iran are yet to be seen. And they'll also dictate the direction in which Britain will move under the leadership of its new PM. Now, going back to the US and Donald Trump. 
An other important event this month was the dissolution of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or the INF. So in 1987, the US and the Soviet Union signed the INF Treaty. The aim was to permanently eliminate their nuclear and conventional ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with the range between 500 to 5,500 kilometers. Since 2014, Washington has accused Moscow of violating the agreement. And of course, Moscow has denied both charges and accused the U.S. of violating the treaty. So, on October last year, Trump announced that he plans to terminate the INF. The agreement expires in 2021. But in the beginning of July, Vladimir Putin signed a bill into law which formally suspends the treaty. And then U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked by a media house if the U.S. was going to pull out of the INF on August 2nd, and he agreed. So that's going to be a story to watch out this August. Another important story regarding Russia took place in Asia. On 23rd July, South Korean fighter jets fired more than 300 warning shots at a Russian military aircraft that violated airspace claimed by Seoul. Moscow furiously denied Seoul's account of the encounter, claiming that South Korean military jets had dangerously intercepted two of its bombers during a planned flight over neutral waters. Why were the Russians there in the first place? They were conducting a joint patrol of the area, according to Russia's defense ministry, to deepen Russian and Chinese relations and perfect joint military capabilities. At the same time, Japan backed Seoul's version of the events because they too had scrambled fighter jets when Russians entered this airspace. Now, what you should know is that Russian jets flew close to over a set of islands called Dokdo or Takashima that both Japan and South Korea lay claim to. Now, going to the new rising star of the world, China has had to deal with a lot over the last month, most particularly the protests in Hong Kong. Now, the Hong Kong Parliament was trying to pass an extradition bill. This would mean that people in Hong Kong could be sent to mainland China to be tried for their crimes, and Hong Kongers weren't a big fan of the idea. The month of June saw huge protests that supposedly numbered over a million people who turned up on the streets. There were altercations with the police that led to a lot of injuries, but mostly the protests were peaceful. In July, though, things took a more violent turn. More protests were organized on the 1st of July, which marked the 22nd anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British to Chinese rule. And in the evening, hundreds of mass protesters broke into the parliament. They ransacked the building, put up anti-government graffiti on the walls, hosted a British colonial era flag on the main chamber, and sprayed the city crest with black paint. The chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, said that there would be legal repercussions, but things took a darker turn. On July 21st, a rally was organized in the center of the city, and as protesters were returning from it, a group of masked men in white were armed with iron bars and bamboo sticks. They rushed into the metro station in Yuanlong and attacked anyone who was wearing black or any other identifiers of having been at the protests. Around 45 people were seriously injured, and the police took an hour to rush into the scene. The slow response time has been criticized by people who say that these vigilante groups have the support of the government. To raise international awareness, Hong Kong protesters have chosen to protest at the airport, dressed in black. But that's an evolving story, and one that we will definitely need to revisit in a month. In India, too, we have a story about extradition, a small one, though. Now you know that fugitive diamond merchant Nirav Modi has been remanded in judicial custody till 22 August, and he is going to appear for his hearing from his London prison cell via video link. 
the efforts to have him extradited back to India have been constantly kept up by the Indian government. So this is an interesting development. What goes down during the hearing will also go on to determine the future of his case. Now we come back to South Asia. The monsoons have wreaked havoc. While flooding in Bombay always gets attention, there is one other state that is currently going through major turmoil. A massive flood in the state of Assam has devastated lives of thousands and brought their livelihoods to a standstill. The death toll has reached 80 and has been rising steadily as the flood ravages affected districts. More than 27 lakh people have been affected in more than 2,000 villages. But given that waters are now receding, there is hope that the rehabilitation process starts as soon as possible and puts the state machinery back on track. Now, Assam is not the only one affected by the floods. In Bangladesh, the death toll stands at 114. More than 66,000 homes have been reported to be destroyed by these floods and 4 million people have been put at risk. Nepal too has been battered by the rain since July 11th and 108 people have been reported dead with many more being displaced. All the governments are carrying out disaster management work as we speak, though it's going to be a while before things go back to status quo. With that, we come to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. I hope you found it useful. A huge shout out to Vikram Varma for helping me script this episode. Vikram is a student of journalism with a keen interest in foreign policy and international relations. If you have any questions or comments, do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IBM podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next Tuesday. <laughs>